name is Freeze. Learn it well, for it's the chilling sound of your doom. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, this is Rob. So this is what went wrong this week. Um, we were supposed to do a feature-length commentary with Makai and myself talking about Batman and Robin 20 years after its initial release, and that didn't, uh, didn't exactly go to plan because, believe it or not, it's actually really hard to record a podcast with an infant in the house. And those of you who listened to our Wonder Woman episode from a few weeks back could probably attest to that. We had our, our daughter sort of in the background uh, crying and, and you know groaning and making noises, grumbles, as I like to call them. Uh, now and again, kind of uh, interrupting the flow of thought and uh, the clarity of the audio and all that. So I, we decided that it probably made sense for now to uh, to give Kai a little bit of a hiatus from the, the uh, podcast as we work out the whole sleeping in the crib scenario with our daughter and um, you know maybe table the Batman and Robin commentary or other commentaries uh, for the time being. So instead, you know, just thinking about the fact that Batman and Robin's coming up in 20 years, I've noticed a lot of anniversaries a lot of big anniversaries going on this year specifically i don't know what it was about 1997 or 2007 but it, i mean just in the last few weeks we've had batman and robin um the 20th anniversary of harry potter the the novel series not the films obviously um face off the john woo movie that launched a million nicholas cage memes and Spaceballs, which actually turned 30 um and it's interesting that, you know, it really got my mind kind of rolling about looking back and uh, nostalgia and how how there's something about now with the age of the Internet and the fact that we're all so connected and social media, that nostalgia is, is really bigger than ever before. Thanks to, you know, thanks to uh, the fact that everything is literally documented. Um, every aspect of our life is documented. And so, you know, to go back and look 10 years ago, this happened 20 years ago. I mean, look at the fine brothers and their react videos, uh, having teens and, and adults, et cetera, react to various pop cultural phenomena. Um, I mean, I, I think that really kind of underscores the, uh, the point that I'm trying to get across here is that it's uh, it's 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 interesting. We feel like the way we cons- as a student of pop culture, the way we consume film, television, music, um, and just you know pop culture uh, as a whole has really changed just in the last decade or so. Because um, I mean, I you know back in the day, I don't remember being like it's been five years since this movie. It's been ten years since this. And some of that is also being an adult and growing up and having a childhood to look back on. But some of that is also like, I mean, you see teenagers now that are like, oh my God, that was 10 years ago that this thing happened. That's crazy. Um, because it is, because things, life seems to move so fast and things seem to, uh, you know, every there's a record of everything on your Facebook page. It's like on this day, three years ago, this happened. And then it's kind of, on the one hand, I think it's, I think it is a double-edged sword because I think it is, um, it's good because it keeps things in perspective and then you can look back and be like, oh, it's been five years since since that film or 10 years, you know, 10 years since, you know, I don't know, but it's actually 10 years since Spider-Man uh, 3, but not that that's the anniversary anybody wants to necessarily mark. Um, it keeps things in perspective as far as how time is passing by, but it also sort of, I think, hinders us as, as, uh, as fans of pop culture or as people in general, because we're constantly looking back and not necessarily looking forward. So that's like my deep philosophical observation that I had 
just thinking about Batman and Robin and it's being 20 years and also the fact that all these big anniversaries for these big pop cultural uh, milestones or what have become, you know, not necessarily face off as it was a big turning point for pop culture, but it's become a big thing over the years since then. Same thing with Spaceballs and definitely Harry Potter. Um, so just with Batman and Robin specifically, the other thing that I was thinking too is that that was 20 years ago. So June 20th, 1997. As you guys probably know, because I mentioned it on here before, I believe, uh, I just celebrated a birthday, and that was actually my birthday movie um, <laughs> of, uh, of 1997. So I don't know, I don't know if this is just a thing that, that my family does, or if this is a thing that, that people in general, because I've seen some people on social media have done, have, have, you know, talked about movies in this way. I, every year, basically, since as far back as I can remember, and I think one of the earliest ones I can think of is... Uh, going to see Aladdin for my birthday in 1992 as a kid, um, is that every year I look at the movie schedule and you know the release schedule and I and I see, is pay special attention to whatever's coming out like towards the end of June, so you know with the intention of either going to see a movie on my birthday as part of my birthday festivities, go out to eat, go hang out with family, blah blah, blah do something fun, go see a movie. Um, I mean, Aladdin was one of them. Batman and Robin was one. Speed Two Cruise Control sadly was one. Um, or not, not birthday. Wait, wait. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, now I'm realizing maybe Batman and Robin wasn't my birthday movie. Maybe I think Speed Two Bur Cruise Control was my birthday movie that year. I think I saw Batman and Robin probably the week before because I was super hyped about that. And that's something that Kai and I would have talked about on the commentary is that when that movie came out, we both were huge Batman fans and you know loved the '89 one. Batman Returns is less so. I think that that film now is being discussed as super underrated, and I think I don't really agree with that analysis. Uh, but I did enjoy Batman Forever for the campy ridiculousness that it was, especially, you know, as a 12-year-old. That was that was kind of my jam, and I was obsessed with Jim Carrey. So we were both went into Batman and Robin super hyped about that. So I probably didn't even wait until my birthday to see it. I probably saw it that opening weekend. So if it came out the 20th, I probably saw it the 21st of June in 1997. But uh, so every year I do this thing where I look for birthday movies and I'm like, oh, this comes out June, you know, my birthday's June 30th. This comes out June 29th. I guess I'll see it on my birthday, blah, blah, blah. So this, this year it was actually going to be, um, hopefully, well, initially it was going to be Despicable Me 3 because I'm a fan of that franchise. Yes, even Minions. I know it's sort of a guilty pleasure. I'm not going to defend it as a brilliant Pixar level um, animation achievement, but I, I do enjoy the, those films. And even though I'm less uh, less than confident that Despicable Me Three is going to be the best entry in the franchise, I haven't seen it yet, and so I I um, I'm still looking forward to checking it out, just because I do have affection for the previous films in that franchise. So it was going to be Despicable Me Three, and then Baby Driver moved its release date from I think mid August to June twenty eighth. And being a huge Edgar Wright fan, I love the Cornetto trilogy. I love Scott Pilgrim, which um, some of those films I'm definitely definitely going to talk about on here at some point, including potentially Baby Driver. Um, that ended up not happening because I ended up getting a screening for Spider-Man: Homecoming, which is uh, this is a, this is kind of a an easy, easy transition into that. Um, so I reviewed Spider-Man: Homecoming for WeGotThisCovered.com. You can read my full written review there. I'll put a link to uh, to that in the show notes. And uh, Freddie and I actually went to see that. And uh, that, not on my birthday itself, so it ended up being a couple days before. But that was essentially my birthday movie this year. So before I move into the Spider-Man, I want to do a Let's Talk About Six, looking back on the Spider-Man franchise as a whole. 
leading into, of course, the new film. But before I do that, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna put a, a call to action here. Like, is are birthday movies a thing? Before I talk about this year's birthday movie for me, are birthday movies a thing with you guys? Like, do you anticipate and get excited when a film? a film that you're anticipating or you're really interested in seeing comes out right before your birthday? Do you make that a part of, in your mind, sort of part part of your birthday celebration? Like you're going to see that movie on your birthday or right before it's part of your birthday weekend or something. Like, is that a thing that you do? I mean, I'm assuming if you're listening to this podcast, it's because you're a movie fan. So chances are there are some of you that do do that. Um, but I'm just wondering if this is something that my family and I invented because they were like, well, you know, my parents were looking for something to do with me on my birthday. And they're like, you like movies. Let's take them to a movie that's, you know, that's relatively affordable and it's right nearby and it's convenient and stuff. Or or if this is a thing that, that other cinephiles do. Not that I necessarily would have called myself a cinephile at nine years old, but I mean, I've been a fan of entertainment since forever. Um, so just send me a message on Twitter at Crooked Table and let me know if that's the case. I'm really curious to see if if this is indeed as um, as popular as I think it is. So then, that being said, um, so we saw Spider-Man Homecoming, and I'm going to get into more details on that later on this podcast, as well as next week. Tune in next week to hear me and Freddie go in-depth, just balls out, strictly on Spider-Man Homecoming, because, uh, you know, that was, a, that was an interesting one, and we had a lot to say, so we, we went in-depth into a pretty, uh, pretty lengthy spoiler conversation about that film um, immediately after seeing it. So, um, you know, I'm sure if you're a fan of Spider-Man, you want to see how Spider-Man Homecoming ranks with the rest of the films, because as you know, there have been quite a few Spider-Man films to date uh, over the last decade and a half. So, you know, um, let's talk about Six. Let's talk about Six, baby. Let's talk about Flicks and me. Let's talk about what the good films and the bad films are to me. Let's talk about Six. Let's talk about Six. All right, kicking off the Spider-Man edition of Let's Talk About Six. Coming in dead last at number six, and it couldn't have happened to a nicer film. The Amazing Spider-Man 2. This is, of course, the was a 2014 release from director Mark Webb, in which Andrew Garfield returned as Peter Parker slash Spider-Man alongside Emma Stone as Gwen Stacy and uh, Jamie Foxx as Electro. And this film gave me such strong whiffs of suckitude that it, it was from the fact that the uh, main villain's backstory was essentially a copy and paste of Jim Carrey's Riddler from Batman Forever and the, the cliche German scientist and the uh, cramming in of far too many villains and subplots and the fact that none of it really made sense. Uh, I mean, I do, I do f- f- cards on the table, I do own all of the five Spider-Man films that have been released on home video to date. I do not like all of them, but as a completist and as someone who likes to, like, prides himself on the fact that there are, even in crappy films, there are elements that are worth saving. I, uh, <laughs> shame, shamefully picked up Amazing Spider-Man 2 on DVD at one point for like five or six bucks. I was just like, all right, fuck it. I have the first one. Might as well. And there are elements in this film that do work. I would say uh, Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone's performances in particular. Um, the visual effects and some of the some of the action sequences involving Spider-Man battling Electro and that kind of thing. They really work. The music is terrible. The performances from a lot of the other supporting cast members, including Dane DeHaan, who's really overcooked here as... Harry Osborn, and um, very, very much paling in comparison to 
James Franco's character, the fact that he was actually an organic part of the story and didn't feel sort of shoehorned in there. I think this movie made so many mistakes, uh, the least of which is putting uh, Harry Osborn and the Green Goblin saga in there and then cramming in the uh, the resolution of the Gwen Stacy Peter Parker love story from the comics. I won't get into spoilers for those of you who haven't seen the film, but you're not missing on a whole lot, not missing out on a whole lot. And it's, um, it's by far the weakest Spider-Man film for me, even though there are moments in it that I will, I will say are cool. It's, uh, it falls pretty flat. So coming in at number five, Spider-Man three, this is the 2007 film from director Sam Raimi with Tommy McGuire, Kirsten Dunst, James Franco, et cetera, et cetera. And this one actually, which is really weird considering uh, you think Sony would have learned their lesson with this film uh, because they repeated a lot of the same mistakes on Amazing Spider-Man 2. They had a successful franchise, they had something that people loved, and they decided let's just water, let's just overwater this thing and put way too much of of, uh, of the elements that people liked, but let's double down on it. Wait, let's cram in Venom and Sandman and Harry Osborn and the resolution of that revenge plot. Let's throw a, uh, an amnesia thing in there. Let's uh, let's bring in another love interest for her, for Peter, which is Gwen Stacy, which is a weird reversal of the comic book canon, but whatever. Let's have not one, not two, but like three or four musical sequences for some reason, two of which have been gone down in history as notorious... Uh, notoriously bad dance uh, scenes for Peter Parker, especially that one in the club where he's freaking Cuban peating his way through uh, trying to make Mary Jane jealous. Again, like The Amazing Spider-Man 2, there are elements in here. I think the visual effects in Spider-Man 3 are really impressive. I'm thinking specifically of the the rescue of Gwen Stacy with the the whole, I think it's a, a crane like going that, that goes out of control and goes through a building. Um, the Christopher Young score is really strong, especially the birth of Sandman. And I think the performances for what they're worth uh, from not only the main cast, but also people like Thomas Hayden Church and uh, obviously J.K. Simmons is great and everything. I think that's all really, really well done. The voiceover from the British reporter towards the end and uh, all the, the, the journalists kind of be like, this could be the end of Spider-Man. It's just so hammy and not in a good way that Raimi pulled off in the second film. The revelation with Sandman and the the way that the Uncle Ben's death went down, to me, completely undermines the very reason for why Peter would become Spider-Man in the first place. And and the let's Venom. Topher, Topher Grace's Venom is one of the biggest miscasts in comic book movie history. And, uh, you know, if nothing else, with the upcoming Venom movie that Sony's developing, at least we know that Tom Hardy will probably be a more credible Venom than Topher Grace. Well, not probably, he will be a more credible Venom than Topher Grace. And there's a lot of potential of that character that they squandered in this movie. And there's a lot of potential in general that they squandered in this movie. So it's a real disappointment that it uh, became as big of a mess as it was and basically ended the franchise that could have continued with Spider-Man 4 or 5 or 6, whatever. Um, but like I said, I do own all of these. So even though Spider-Man 3 is the second worst Spider-Man film, as a, com as a completionist, I do own... Uh, I do like the fact that I have the three Raimi films, and it does sort of bring that storyline to a close, albeit a very unsatisfying one. So coming in at number four, The Amazing Spider-Man. This is the 2012 reboot, coming five years after um, Spider-Man 3, in which Andrew Garfield debuted as Peter Parker. And I did like elements of what Andrew Garfield brought to this character. I think he did bring sort of a, a like, uh, I don't know, emo, like, modern charm that maybe... Um, not that Peter Parker should be emo, but he brought more of a modern charm to 
to um, like hipstery charm to Peter Parker that Tobey Maguire didn't. He also looked, even though he was the same age that Peter, that Tobey Maguire was when he was debuted as Peter Parker in 2002, he did actually look more the part of a young high schooler. Um, and obviously the fact that he and Emma Stone were together in real life really, I think, helped the film in a way because they their chemistry was very palpable and easily exceeded the Tobey Maguire or Kirsten Dunst chemistry in the original films just based on that. So the love story in there was actually probably, to date, the most uh, compelling of the, uh, the Spider-Man films overall. Um, even though the origin story, again, like the 2002 movie, it spends half the film establishing an origin story that everyone knows, just showing us Martin Sheen as uh, Uncle Ben getting gunned down instead of Cliff Robertson. Sally Field is great as Aunt May, but it's you get the, the sense that there's an attempt to make this material fresh, even though the, mater- the material is not fresh. Uh, they just thought that they could basically tweak things a little bit, not necessarily have him say when Grey Power comes responsibility, but a variation on that, and just put new faces in there and thinking that it was going to... Uh, gonna make the the entire enterprise worthwhile and uh, for me it it half worked like there are I like the fact that they threw the lizard in there I like the fact that they were at least trying to send some backstory on uh, Peter Parker's parents as the quote-unquote untold story I don't think they pulled it off and I don't think they developed it well in the second one at all in fact I think that they kind of blew their load on the for that in the beginning of the second movie and Freddie and I talk about this next week in that, you know, I don't want to see any... I think that these these movies had their chance to delve into Peter's backstory and his parents and what was going on there, but I don't really want them to delve into that because I think they ruined their chance here. And I don't really want to see a lot of these villains that have been done in these movies again, and I don't want to see the Uncle Ben thing. And, uh, I, you know, I, I'm a little hesitant for when they do get to Gwen Stacy just because that was the most successful element of this movie. So The Amazing Spider-Man for me is sort of a mixed bag. There are things about it that I like, but to me it's just felt like too much of a retread of the original film to to really mark the beginning of a new start. I mean, if you compare uh, Amazing Spider-Man to Spider-Man 20, uh, 2002, and then what Batman Begins did for Batman compared to Batman 89, totally different. I mean, yes, did they cover the same backstory? Sort of. But Batman 89 and Batman Begins do it in totally different ways. Spider-Man and Spider, The Amazing Spider-Man basically take the exact same route of straight-up narrative storytelling with a midway point where Uncle Ben dies and all that stuff. And um, I could have done without it. It just seemed kind of pointless, even though the production value and, and the talent was there, yeah, both in front of the camera and behind it. Um, it. It just seemed like a sort of ill-conceived production from the get-go. So coming in at number three... Spider-Man Homecoming. This is, of course, the new movie that's about to hit theaters with um, Tom Holland debuting as Peter Parker in his first solo film. And we saw him already in Captain America Civil War. And like I said, Freddie and I will get into this in depth in this in this uh, next week's episode. And uh, there are a lot of things about this movie that I do really like. The fact that the Vulture is finally getting his chance to be the villain after Spider-Man 4, in which John Malkovich was supposedly in mind to play that character was shelved. I like um, I like Tom Holland's performance. I like the script and I like the way that it's much more um, much more grounded in high school and it feels like you're on a journey with this kid that is way over his head and, and uh, out of his league 
in in multiple respects. I do feel like the film is sort of bogged down by some of the MCU stuff. It does not feel like a standalone film at all because you have Tony Stark's presence throughout. You have multiple references to the different Avengers and stuff. And that sort of colors Peter's perspective from this film, being an outsider wanting to be an Avenger, wanting to prove himself to Mr. Stark and all that. And um, I think that the sequel will easily improve upon this now that that's all gotten... uh, you know, gotten past, and um, we're gonna see him again, of course, in Avengers. Inven- excuse me, Avengers: Infinity War, and uh, I think that the Spider-Man: Homecoming sequel can only improve and build upon what's here, in the way that Spider-Man Two did did for the original Spider-Man film. Um, I feel like now that this groundwork has been laid, there's uh, there's definitely a much stronger foundation for better stories and more interesting villains and conflicts to come. Not that Michael Keaton is bad in the film. He's actually quite good in the movie. And the character is good for what he is. He's just not as visually dynamic or in the stakes until, you know, late in the film, I guess. The the stakes don't really feel as personal um, for Peter as some of the other films have uh, have depicted them as, as such. So... Well, you know, I'm I'm I enjoyed the movie. I think it's solid. I don't think it's the best MCU movie this year. I don't think it's the best uh, superhero movie this year. And that's a little bit of a of a spoiler, I guess, for my thoughts on next week's episode. But um, it is definitely worth seeing, and it's nice to have Spider-Man in the MCU where he belongs. Coming in at number two, Spider-Man, the 2002 film by Sam Raimi. This movie was, I think, people that were either really little at the time or you know weren't even around or you know young teenagers now weren't who weren't around when this movie came out probably don't realize this was a phenomenon when this when this film came out it felt like something new and fresh and we'd seen uh, superhero movies before this of course we had the the batman movies with michael keaton and then the the sequels to that we had uh christopher reeve as superman we even had blade and x-men before this but seeing spider-man who is Probably one of the top three most iconic superheroes, I would say, put him up there with Batman and Superman. Um, Prior to the comic book movie explosion, of course, because now Iron Man is iconic. When back in 2002, Iron Man, Thor, Captain America, these were not characters you thought would believably be in a movie. Spider-Man was an iconic figure where he had the the animated theme song, Spider-Man, Spider-Man, that everybody knew. He had a backstory that everybody knew. He got bit by a radioactive spider and... And uh, a costume and powers that everybody like he was everybody from from like little kids to grandparents knew who Spider-Man was, and for that character to be realized on screen in the way that he was in this movie was something really special and magical. And I was working at a movie theater at the time, and I remember we had a a huge Spider-Man, um, you know, Spider-Man banner like one of those canvas ones hanging in the theater. When as soon as you come in, and it basically it was the image, it was the poster image of him on the side of the building, and it it. You know, it basically smacked people in the face when it when you walked right in, and uh, the hype surrounding this was incredible. I think this did make over four hundred million in two thousand two. That's a big deal. I mean, now four hundred million is like you have multiple Disney movies in one year making over four hundred million. But in two thousand two, fifteen years ago, that was a huge, that was a huge achievement. And the fact that this movie, I mean, I think X Men gets a lot of credit for kind of kicking off the current Marvel thing, Marvel. Um, you know, Marvel fan base as far as movie-wise and, and the uh, the comic book explosion of on, on the big screen, etc. And I think Blade sort of keyed that up and, and X-Men was the next step. But it was really, if we're going to break it down to one that was the turning point that let studios know, hey, 
superheroes are big business. People want to see this kind of story on the big screen. It was Spider-Man that made that happen. Spider-Man is the film that was the the turning point, the the uh, the moment of ex- the moment of explosion where that became a thing. Because after Spider-Man, you got Daredevil, you got Fantastic Four, you got all every Marvel character under the sun, and and you know DC got in on the action with Batman Begins and Superman Returns and and uh, multiple other movies. That this was the movie that started it with good reason because I think the film still does hold up. The effects feel a little dated. There are elements in the storytelling that that are a little a little overly cheesy, and I know that you know the subsequent films that Raimi did dabble in that a little bit. But I also think he strikes the right balance between playing it straight and also playing it kind of goofy because objectively, the idea about a high school teenager who gets bitten by a spider and then has webs shoot out of his arms, and yes, the move, the you know, as you remember probably the uh, the web shooters in here or are organic the this geeky teenager that knows how to climb up walls and stuff is kind of a ridiculous idea and i think Raimi um Raimi toes that line between campy and and uh serious perfectly in those first two movies and um you know whatever issues you have with kirsten dunst as mary jane with some of the other casting decisions or the mask for green goblin there are so many iconic moments and uh, elements of this film that I still remember, even having not seen it all the way through in, in probably at least a couple years, a few years, whatever it's been. Um, the upside down kiss, the uh, the sequence with him trying to hunt down Uncle Ben's killer, um, the the battle at the parade there with the balloons, and and um, I mean, there's so much going on. Willem Dafoe is great in it. McGuire is great in it. Kirsten Dunst is good. James Franco just top-notch talent across the board and does the movie feel aged yeah a little bit but i mean for the most part it it is definitely going it's definitely in history as one of the one of the landmark superhero films on the big screen even if and that's spoilers for what we're about to say even if its sequel improved upon it so coming in at number one spider-man 2 now to me this is of course a 2004 sam raimi movie with the same cast that i just mentioned minus uh, oh, well, no, Willem Dafoe's still in it, actually. In a cameo. Spoilers. <laughs> for a, spoilers for a 13-year-old movie. Um, this, to me, is definitely one of the, if not top five, top ten best comic book films of all time. Definitely the best Spider-Man film. Definitely one of the best Marvel films. I feel like it's de- it's better than most of the MCU releases today. Not all, but it's probably, it's probably better than all but like two or three, maybe. If not... If not, yeah, if not better than most, better, not better than all of them. Uh, I, I'd have to crunch the numbers in my head exactly to figure out where I would 100% place it. But it's um, it's an, it's a pretty incredible film. The fact that it, it puts you in Peter Parker's shoes in a way that the first movie never really, like, tries to but never really accomplishes. You understand what he's, come, what he's going through. You understand his conflict. You understand uh, the pressures that he has. Oh. Sounds like it's storming out there. You understand the pressures that he's has mounting between his unrequited love for Mary Jane, the conflict with Harry, the guilt over over Norman Osborn, the fact that he has this, the secret about Uncle Ben that he hasn't told told his aunt, um, plus the financial pressure and then trying to keep up his schoolwork, and it, it makes you it really makes you empathize for that character in a way that the first one never did. Um, not to mention you have the best Spider-Man villain on the big screen to date. In Alfred Molina's Doctor Octopus, 
Um, it, it just there's just so many there's so many breathtaking sequences involving Doc Ock, involving Spider Man, dramatic scenes where you you really feel for for Peter Parker, or um, you know, uh, the love story to me is way more is way more palpable in the second one than it is in the first. And then, of course, it, it falls apart a little bit in the third one, where it kind of becomes ridiculous, and he's, like, crying in a park, and it sort of becomes borderline laughable. In this movie, you really feel his his longing for, for MJ, his longing for, for love, his longing to feel like he has um, a purpose, a reason to drive him to, do, to, become, to be Spider-Man. And that's ultimately what the film is about, is that it's about him trying to square in his own mind why he's doing this. Like, what is his... What, what is the point? If he's not happy and he's not getting anywhere and he feels negative energy being thrust upon him from every angle, from J. Jonah Jameson, from from his friend, from all the guilt and everything weighing on him, he doesn't know what his point, what his purpose is, what his place in the world is. And ultimately, that's what this film is about. And I think that's really, in a lot of ways, what makes it resonate with me and what makes it strike such a chord with, um, with moviegoers, even 13 years later, in that... The elements that make Peter Parker, and Stan Lee has said this multiple times, the elements that make this character so relatable and so popular are the, are the fact that he is a regular guy who's trying to balance so many aspects of his life in addition to being a superhero. I mean, that that's sort of the fantastical extension of uh, his inner conflict and his great power and great responsibility um, thing and i think that that none of the spider-man movies to date really really encapsulate that the way that spider-man 2 has spider-man homecoming uh and the original spider-man come close but to me spider-man 2 is still the gold standard that all the spider-man films are judged against and one of the big reasons in addition to everything i just said is that it does have by far one of the best uh, superhero action sequences of all time and of course i'm talking about the entire battle on the train and and um where he has to stop it, basically holding it on both sides with the web to try and stop the train and save all these people from death, and the aftermath of that, where he's unmasked and all of that. It just it hits me in the feels every time I watch this movie, and uh, it's by far to me the best Spider-Man film to date. Now, whether Spider-Man: Homecoming sequel improves upon what Homecoming did and actually manages to uh, to exceed the original, I mean uh, Spider-Man Two. In the way that Spider-Man 2 exceeded the original film, um, I mean that remains to be seen. I do, and I mentioned this on my Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 episode. I do truly believe that when it comes to these kinds of stories, that the sequels are almost always better than the original. I mean, I think Iron Man is an exception, but the Captain America films are better. The uh, The Dark Knight is better than Batman Begins. Um, X-Men 2 is better than the original X-Men, even Days of Future Past. To me personally, I know some people don't agree with this, is better than First Class. I think in almost in almost all cases, the sequel is able to expound upon the, the uh, backstory that's really laid out in the origin film. A lot of times the first movie in a superhero franchise gets so bogged down with, this is who this person is, and then, oh, this thing happens, and they get powers, and now they're a hero. And then the second film is the one that really has the opportunity to develop that and turn it into something uh, something significant or not. And to me, Spider-Man 2 is, the, is one of the best examples of that. And um, by far, you know, the one that I would hold uh, on a pedestal as far as, as far as the friendly neighborhood web slinger that we all know and love. That's all for this episode of the Crooked Table Podcast. 
If you can rate and review us on iTunes, we're also on Stitcher. Find me on Twitter, at Crooked Table. We're also on Facebook and the other social medias. You can find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies at CrookedTable.com. And I have actually started to develop out my, uh, my video filming setup. Uh, so hopefully in the near future, I will actually have some fresh videos that aren't just video versions of the podcast um, in the coming weeks. So stay tuned for that. Next week, as I mentioned... You uh, will be able to hear me and Freddie go at length. I think it's, I think the, uh, I haven't edited the podcast yet, but I think it's looking at the raw audio is about an hour and 45 minutes. So um, that's all the Spider-Man goodness you can possibly imagine. I think it's actually about almost as long as the film itself. Um, I believe that film is actually a little over two hours, but so that's all next week. You can hear me and Freddie discuss that to uh, Spider-Man spoilers to your heart's content. Definitely go see Spider-Man Homecoming, though. I know we both agreed it was really fun. And uh, even though it's not quite, as I mentioned on this list, not quite as as um, satisfying as some of the other Spider-Man movies, it's it's definitely one of the one of the good ones. And you can, like I said, you can find my review, my written review for Spider-Man Homecoming on WeGotThisCovered.com. I'll put that link in the show notes as well as to as well as any other relevant links. Um, so that'll be next week on the Crooked Table podcast. Until then, I've been Rob. We'll catch you around the table next week. Roll credits. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the low KED.